study of Revelation last week, we looked at a pause in the narrative, a pause in the narrative of the seven seals being broken. Uh, and in that pause, that we witnessed the sealing of God's people. It's his seal on them. They are marked by his Holy Spirit before the narrative moves forward. And now the readers of the story uh, return to the anticipated completion of the seven seals narrative. What will happen next? And I'll be honest with you, what happens next is uh, not only not necessarily what we expect, but it, it might even be characterized as kind of anticlimactic. Um, everything's been building up to this point, and the seventh seal is opened, and it's marked by a half hour of silence. Maybe not the dramatic impact that, uh, that we were imagining, but very significant nonetheless. So reading from Revelation 8 and verse 1, it says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, probably not a literal half hour. For one thing, this is in a dream. For another thing, these are people without clocks. So what does a half hour mean if you're just estimating it? Um, but also this sort of idea of half time, half of something, so uh, half of an hour, half of seven years, it'll be three and a half years, that will come up multiple times. This idea of half time in Revelation is, is sort of a time that gets cut short, a time that is not allowed to be completely fulfilled. Uh, so do with that what you will. At this point, we'll, we'll talk more about it later. Uh, in the midst of everything that is transpiring, in the midst of all of this very busy narrative, all these things that are happening as the seals are opened and, and God's people are sealed, all of these, uh, these mystical visions, at the opening of the seventh seal, everything comes to rest. Now, that's, that's really significant in light of the fact that what we have observed in Revelation so far is that there is sort of constant activity, constant worship, constant praise. Things are just happening over and over again. There's no break in the action. All of heaven and all of earth and everything under the earth is worshiping God. We have all these passages about that. And at this particular moment, the seventh seal is broken and everything falls silent. Everything. Or half a time. It is essentially a Sabbath. The seventh seal is broken and we have a Sabbath rest. All of creation and everything in heaven comes to rest for this time. The inclusion of a Sabbath suggests that what we have been reading is actually a decreation narrative. That what we witness in the seven seals is humanity remaking the world in its own image. That, that we, if we go back to that original creation story, God creates everything in six days and on the seventh day he rests. 
what we have witnessed to the breaking of the six seals is all the damage that humanity does to the world. Everything that's broken about it. And so it is this weird sort of perverse decreation narrative. Everything is coming apart at the seams. And at the end, there is this period of rest, this Sabbath, to mark that that decreation is complete. But inasmuch as the decreation is not, does not have the goodness of the original creation, even that Sabbath is sort of cut short. What we witness really is humanity supplanting the sovereignty of God, taking God's place, which is in effect the original sin. This is, this is what Eve is tempted with, right? Where it all begins. You can be like God. And we're still enamored with that possibility today. At each step along the way, humanity is displacing the goodness of creation with its own various forms of corruption. Second verse of Revelation 8 says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, just like in the uh, original creation narrative, the trumpets sort of recount in further detail, everything that we've witnessed so far. So think about it this way. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is the story of creation, right? But it's the story of creation in rather broad strokes. Genesis chapter 2 is the same story, but in greater detail. The trumpet's narrative seems to follow um, that pattern so the seven trumpets vision appears to coincide with the seven seals. So when John says, and I saw, and we'll see that, we've seen that phrase several times, we'll see it more. When he says, and I saw, our tendency is to place all of those events in chronological order. And I saw this, and then I saw that. But and I saw literally means we're starting a new vision. This vision is related to the one that we just had, but, but it's a different vision. So if you're looking back through, for instance, the Old Testament prophets, they do this all the time. You have a string of different visions that are all kind of interrelated and connected, and they're all telling a story about the same thing. The, uh, the the, the seven trumpets are often regarded by scholars and theologians as essentially contents of the seventh seal. I'm not sure I can make that leap, but there is this sense in which we're still talking about things that could happen now, but things that will definitely be happening as the day of judgment approaches. If the seven seals represent the nature, the condition of our broken world, then the judgment of the seven trumpets represent extreme events that can take place in the context of that broken world. They are themselves sort of trumpet calls. So if you think of 
the brokenness of our world, the fact that we always have wars, we always have famines, we always have poverty, it exists constantly somewhere in our world, even if we're insulated from it and we can pretend it isn't happening, it's always there. That is the ambient temperature, if you will, of a fallen world. The trumpet judgments represent sort of spikes in that temperature, events that are outside the norm and that call our attention in a supernatural way. They are like trumpet blasts. Given the association that all of this has with the temple of the Lord, this is most likely the trumpet in question, or something like this. It's a shofar. Uh, this is a more of an ornamental one. They're usually made of a ram's horn, which would be shorter and smaller than this. But it's, it's this, this trumpet blast that people would associate with the heavens, with the temple, with worship, and also with battle. And so the blast of the trumpet is something that you anticipate hearing in regard to uh, a battle cry or worship. A blast of the shofar is a warning and a call to repentance. We see it as a warning in battle. Take, for instance, the people's march around the city of Jericho. They blast their trumpets, and it's a warning to the people of Jericho, and on the final day, after they've done all these things that God instructs, then they blast all the trumpets, and they yell, and they make as much noise as possible, and the walls come crashing down. That's the shofar blast. But we also see it in temple worship. We see it specifically in regard to the Feast of Trumpets. And at the Feast of Trumpets, the shofar is blasted to remind people about the sovereignty of God and to call them into a time of repentance. Call them uh, to put, make themselves right before God. We also hear a trumpet blast in the narrative around Mount Sinai. So as Moses is on Sinai sort of meeting with God, says this tr sound of trumpet just keeps getting louder and louder. The implication is that these catastrophic judgments that are associated with these trumpet blasts are a call to repentance and a warning from heaven. Before this final call, there is another little interlude. Before the trumpets start, before the trumpet judgments start to be listed, there is this other little interlude, and this is fascinating. In verses uh, 3 through 5, it says, Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it at the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, there's a lot of interesting things happening here. A couple of things I want to point out to you before we move on. First of all, God's justice occurs in collaboration with the prayers of his people. 
That's extremely significant. God is answering the prayers of his people by bringing this judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that God needs us in order to enact his will, but it does mean that he chooses to include us in the enactment of his will. This is a response to the martyrs calling out to God, saying, when when will you avenge our death? Which sounds... um, which sounds like it's sort of a revenge scenario, but really it, it's about when will the world be renewed? When will this all be made right? We see the brokenness. We know the brokenness is there. When will it be corrected? The seven churches that are reading these letters first, they're enduring trial, they're enduring persecution, they're enduring hardship, and they're calling out to God, when do you make this all right? When does it work the way it's supposed to? And ultimately, the fact that God is responding to the cries of his people really calls us back to Egypt. When God's people are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God and God says, I have heard the cries of my people. I've heard their cries. And because I've heard their cries, I'm going to send this messianic figure, this deliverer in the person of Moses. In fact, John's vision draws heavily on this Exodus narrative. The trumpet judgments that we'll read about and and some of the bold judgments that come later, very much reminiscent of the ten plagues in, in Egypt, have a lot of overlap and would have felt very familiar to anyone familiar with the Old Testament texts. But the trumpets themselves, the trumpets call our minds to Sinai, to the the sound of trumpets that the people hear as as they're waiting on Moses. And this censor interlude sort of plays into that and invokes Sinai as well. Because as Moses is meeting with God, the text tells us that the whole mountain is obscured with smoke and storm and fire. And it's trembling, it's shaking, the earth is shaking. It's all symbols of a world-changing event. Not a judgment per se, as a matter of fact, this sensor being thrown down at the earth, we're not given any indication of the impact that this has on humanity from a judgment view. But, If we look at Isaiah, Isaiah, when he speaks of the deliverance of Israel, he speaks with messianic overtones in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 6. He says, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with a windstorm and a tempest and flames of devouring fire. What is it that we're really looking at? Well, the altar fire come down... It really depicts God's intrusion into our brokenness. The world is broken by man, and we that sin that has broken the world is our responsibility and also our burden, also our, our consequence. But the interesting thing about all of this is that even though 
God allows us to experience the consequence of that sin, God has not absented himself from the story. He, he, he is not vacated. He has not turned his back on us, although sometimes it may feel that way. And in response to the cries of his people, God occasionally invades the world, bringing light into the darkness. At Sinai, that's marked by smoke and flame and trumpets and earthquakes. But note this, Jesus says about himself in Luke 12, he says, I have come to bring fire. He says, that fire, even though I wish it was, that fire has not yet been kindled. Because I still have to go through another baptism. And when I've gone through that baptism, that fire will be kindled. And then what do we see when Jesus is on the cross? The sky turns dark. And when he gives up his spirit, the earth shakes. The stones are broken. The curtain rips in two and the dead rise. It's that earth-shattering event that happens every time God invades our space and brings his righteousness into it counters our brokenness. I want you to keep that context in mind as we begin to witness these trumpet judgments. So, verses uh, 6 and 7, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. I just point out right here that what makes these judgments exceptional is their biblical proportions, right? So when we talk about something that is horrific, we talk about a natural disaster that's really bad, really widespread, we say it was a disaster of biblical proportions. What does that mean? Black plague is called a plague because it was devastating with biblical proportions. It affected so much of the world that nobody really, in effect, is left untouched. The ancients regarded lightning as fire from heaven. So the idea that there would be fire from heaven and hailstones at the same time is really, in and of itself, not that remarkable. We live through that on a fairly regular basis here in Missouri. What's remarkable about it is how widespread it is, that this is a storm that affects the whole earth and that it essentially destroys a third of the earth. And again, let's not take third too literally uh, it, because it's, that's not a hard and fast number. It's just an indication of how widespread this is, that this is an event that has an impact on all of humanity because it's that widespread and that significant. That's a measure of the intensity and the scope of the plague, whatever it might be. And then we come to the next couple of verses. It says, The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The blazing mountain had to evoke memories of Vesuvius. 
Mount Vesuvius in southern Italy erupted in 79 AD, obliterating several cities, the most famous of which is Pompeii, the one that you're probably familiar with. It was buried in ash and captures the last tragic moments of its citizens uh, as they are preserved in this ash. It is an apocalyptic picture. If you wanted first century believers to envision what an apocalypse looked like, Mount Vesuvius is probably the first thing that their minds go to. Vesuvius spewed up to 1.5 million tons per second. And the eruption lasted for two days. The magnitude of this, the scope of this, is beyond our comprehension. It, sh it shot superheated gases more than 20 miles into the stratosphere. Now, we deal with natural disasters on a regular basis. We have ministries that deal with natural disasters. They're, they're back in Kentucky assessing flood damage right now. We're accustomed to these things happening. But this is not one you can ignore. This is not one that two years from now you'll forget happened. If you were experienced this, if you were anywhere in the region, Vesuvius will never be forgotten. And that's the significance of these trumpet judgments. They are big things that call our attention in a unique way. The sea turning to blood certainly would have called our minds back to Egypt, though. That was the first plague in Egypt. And so now we have hail and we have blood, two plagues from Egypt, reimagined as part of this uh, end-time scenario. The third angel, verse uh, 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The torch from the sky is generally interpreted to mean an impact event, a comet or asteroid that impacts the earth. And when we talk about these things in modern terms, they're often uh, described to us as extinction-level events. So uh, back in 96, there was a film called Armageddon that you might remember, which borrows a word from Revelation to describe this exact scenario, right? An asteroid headed towards the Earth, and it's going to be an extinction-level event if it hits. And of course, in that movie, the brave heroes of humanity go off into space and save the world from impending doom which is the way that we always fantasize about world disaster. Uh, the reality is most of our interventions make things worse, but we'll talk about that more later. We love that idea that we could have control over these things. But this is kind of the point. This is kind of the point is when, when nature is unleashed, we, we really don't have any control. That is the power of these judgments, the power of these uh, trumpet events. 
In Revelation, interestingly enough, it's not the impact of a meteor that devastates the earth or devastates the climate. It's simply that it infects the water. Now, we kind of take fresh water for granted. We open a tap and fill our glass, and we can have water, clean water, anytime we want. But for most of human history, and for much of the world even today, fresh, clean drinking water is a life-sustaining piece that requires a great deal of work. To have that, you cannot live without that, and, and for many people, it is not as easy as flipping on a tab. For many people, their water sources are not protected and treated and, 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 and managed in a way that makes sure that nobody's going to get sick from them. And so this is, this is huge for the ancient world. And certainly the church at Laodicea, you remember them with their bitter, lukewarm water, their interests would have been piqued by this. We make a lot of the fact that this star is named Wormwood. I wouldn't read a whole lot into that. Wormwood was understood to be a, a bitter herb that would uh, pollute your water source. I think the significance of it is simply that it embitters. But it's a life source. Again, it recalls the Exodus narrative, not so much in regard to the plagues, but certainly in regard to the bitter water of Mara. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Kind of a clear connection here to the plague of darkness in Egypt, although it's uh, much uh, broader, impacts the entire earth. But in Egypt, in Egypt, what's true in Egypt is true in this scenario as well. The darkness is spiritual as well as physical. The trumpets and some of the later passages that we'll read make it very clear that this whole narrative is a call to repentance. These disasters are intended to get us to recognize the sovereignty of God, to own it, to become responsible to it. And you think about this, all nature, all nature is an opportunity to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. To witness it, to see it at work, to watch the seasons change, to see how things grow, to see how life exists. All of this is an opportunity for us to witness the sovereignty of God and to acknowledge that. But the plagues sort of take it to a different place. You look at the Egyptian plagues and you look at these four trumpet plagues, these are episodes of absolute chaos in the natural world. When the natural world defies us and seems to fight against us. What's poignant about this is that humanity consistently, reliably displaces the sovereignty of God in regard to the natural world. We have historically placed it upon various false gods, idols, 
to the, these are the ones who control everything. And in our modern world, more recently, we have invested that power, that sovereignty in the universe, and oftentimes in ourselves. And the way this works is, is that we, we rely on scientific discovery and we make the mistake of assuming that if we know how a thing happens, it necessarily means that we know why a thing happens. Right now, you know, outside the realm of sensationalism and political rhetoric and media, science is still debating the role that carbon dioxide plays in our atmosphere. You, you'll be told that it's a known quantity, but it's still very much in debate. It is a trace element. It is a very minor part of an atmosphere that is 99% composed of nitrogen and oxygen. And all the other elements within it comprise that last 1%. There is one thing that everybody gets right about this particular debate, though. Our universe, our climate, our ecosystems are dependent upon an infinite complexity of minor parts. And very small parts of that can cause large disaster when they are out of balance. In fact, I would submit to you that this Goldilocks planet of ours, as we sometimes call it, because it exists in a space that's not too hot and not too cold, that manages somehow to be perfect for the existence of human life, our Goldilocks planet that is perfectly and precariously positioned and ordered to keep us alive. When that is examined under the cold light of reason, under the genuine scientific search for truth, what we inevitably conclude is that catastrophe should be the norm. We can frighten ourselves with all the things that might happen because the reality of our world is that it is so fragile. It is so balanced upon a knife's edge that if any one piece of it goes too far one direction or another, catastrophe will ensue. And here's how I have come to live with that knowledge. Our natural world exists and thrives by the grace of God. This is not a popular view anymore, right? To, to ascribe the things of the natural world to God, that's become quite unpopular. It, it, it sounds archaic and silly, right? We, we don't rely on, on God for those things. The natural world has this resilience to it. It, it, it will function without the intervention of God. We can explain God away. When these plagues talk about a third of the world, a third of the earth, or a third of humanity being destroyed, 
it's not just a reference to the severity of the plague. It's also a reference to the restraint that God is exercising. Because the reality of our situation is that if God allows the world to descend into chaos, no one will survive. The world without God is, in fact, the only extinction-level event that we need to be concerned about. Isaiah, coming back to Isaiah 29, verse 16, as it talks more about this, says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? See, creation can deny its creator, but the absence of the order and peace that the creator brings to our existence will reveal just how devastating it would be for us to live without his influence over our world. The point of all is that, of this is that the intrusion of God, the intrusion of God is a judgment upon both the wickedness of the world and the insincerity of the religious. If we can acknowledge that God is creator, then we must allow that he form us. We must allow that he has sovereignty over our creation. We must allow that it is his rule that keeps order and peace and not our intervention into it. At Sinai, God's righteousness comes. And it's a good example of what happens when God's righteousness invades our world because at Sinai, the afflicted are comforted and the comfortable are afflicted. Those who seek to exist without God will know exactly what that means. Those who profess God but who live for the world will be exposed as the hypocrites that they are. And those who live for Christ, and this is the hard part, those who live for Christ will know great trial and tribulation in this world, but they will overcome. More importantly, they will build things that last. One uh, revelation principle I haven't, I haven't provided to you so far, and I want to, want to put this on the table today. It's uh, more expansive than just revelation, but it is nevertheless an important revelation principle, and that is this. God is a consuming fire. In this life and in the coming judgment, we will either be consumed by or refined by the fire of God. And in which station we reside is largely up to us. We will either be consumed by or refined by the fire of God. That's why here we seek to build the kingdom. 
Not only because the kingdom matters, not only because the kingdom is the object of Christ's mission, but because the kingdom is eternal. And when God the consuming fire comes, the things of kingdom will persist. They will exist on into eternity, where the things of this world will burn up. And let's be honest, we all spend a lot of time, a lot of energy investing in things that do not have an eternal fate. We all spend a lot of our lives focused on things that this world says are really important, but which will burn. And most of the things of this world will burn up. They will be consumed in this purification. This judgment, therefore, is a judgment that's sometimes difficult for us to welcome. It's welcomed by the martyrs. They have nothing to lose. And it's welcomed by the people of God in times of persecution because they have everything to gain. What I want to say to you this morning is that calamity in the natural world is not necessarily a harbinger of the last days. In other words, if, if uh, as is often predicted by people who want to frighten us, if, uh, if, if Yellowstone explodes tomorrow, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord is coming. But it doesn't not mean that either. Because here's the point. These outrageous natural disasters happen periodically throughout human history. They are part of the now. They are part of the world that we exist in now. They're always a possibility. But they will also occur in preparation for his return. And so whether or not the disasters that we witness mean that his return is imminent, they are always a reminder. They are always an opportunity for us to honor the sovereignty of God to understand our true position in the world as people who are powerless over the sovereignty of God and to rejoice in the fact that we can be his people who therefore ultimately have nothing to fear from the sovereignty.